This program deals with serious crimes, often of a distressing nature. If at any time you feel that you need support, please get in touch with your local crisis center. For resources that will guide you with confidential support, please see the show notes for this episode on your app. This episode involves crimes that were committed against children. It is not suitable for all listeners. Sarah and Cody Maynard had just finished brushing their teeth and eating their breakfast on the crisp autumn morning of November 10th, 2010. Sarah, aged 13, and Cody, aged 11, kissed their mother on the cheek, told her that they loved her, and strode off to the bus stop to await their transit for school that day. Tina Herman, their mother, readied herself for a stop at the grocery store to top off the family's food and purchase other necessities. Her plan that day was to go grocery shopping, and then apartment hunting with her friend, Stephanie Sprang, so that she could move out of her abusive boyfriend's house before starting her 4pm shift at the Apple Valley, Ohio Dairy Queen. The food service industry was fast-paced and tiresome, but that didn't stop Tina from being a caring and steadfast mother. As 4pm approached, her manager, Valerie Haythorn, got an increasingly bad feeling. When Tina didn't show up at her shift's start, her feelings were concrete. Around 6.30 p.m., she phoned the Apple Valley Police Department to report her absence, making sure to tell police all about her abusive, on-and-off-again boyfriend, Greg Borders. Around 7.25 that evening, Knox County, Ohio Police Department ran a welfare check on the home of Tina Herman and Greg Borders. A deputy walked up the wooden staircase to the neatly decorated patio of the home and knocked on the door. Nobody answered. After knocking again a few times and receiving no response, the deputy left the home to continue his shift, seeing nothing out of the ordinary. The next morning on November 11th, 2010, Ron Metcalf contacted the sheriff's office to report that his girlfriend, Stephanie, was missing as well. Ron told police that Stephanie had made plans with Tina Herman to look for a new place to live so that she could move out of Greg Border's house. After hearing that two women, having made plans to be with each other, were suddenly reported as missing by two completely separate sources, the Knox County Sheriff's Office began to worry. They made the decision to look further into the case and contact the school of Sarah and Cody Maynard. School officials told the inquiring officer that the two children in question were not in attendance that day. The school officials investigated the call and found that both children had been dropped off by the bus the evening before, but had failed to make it to school the next day. That same day at 4.15 p.m., Valerie Haythorn contacted police again. She had entered the home of Tina Herman and Sarah and Cody Maynard. She called the police to report that there was, quote, blood everywhere. Police immediately responded to Valerie Haythorn's call and entered the home to discover a bloodbath. Dan Winterick arrived on the scene and was greeted by an overwhelming saturation of blood in the carpets, seeping through to the subflooring of the living room. Spatter patterns were found on the walls, and upon further investigation, he found two more pools of blood in the corners nearing the beds of two different bedrooms. Winterick recounts that the bloodstained carpet was, quote, probably a foot by a foot, and soaked into the carpet pad. There were three distinct areas, the living room, Sarah's bedroom, and Tina's bedroom. Blood pools indicate that a victim was felled by an assailant and had bled for a certain amount of time depending on the instrument used to inflict the bleeding wound. Blood spatter analysts estimate that rather than the victims being left for an extended period of time bleeding on the floor, 
that the object used to inflict the wounds was more detrimental to those that were hit with it. Wintrick didn't see any evidence that firearms were used during the altercation that caused the wounds resulting in the blood pools, but that they had come from blunt force trauma or sharp force trauma. In the kitchen, bags from the American supermarket, Kroger, were found with groceries left unpacked inside, and a receipt listing a time of purchase just after 12 p.m. on November 10th. Further investigation of the home found three distinct drag marks that all met in the bathroom, where the real bloodletting had occurred. The bathtub and toilet were covered in the dried red liquid, and the shower curtain that was pushed aside had indications that there were, at one point, several inches of blood pooled up inside of the tub. Skin tissues were found to be present with the blood as well. This information led Winterick to the conclusion that the victims had been dismembered in the bathtub. Further blood spatter analysis found two shoe print patterns were amongst the blood stain on the tile of the bathroom floor. Two people were walking around the scene after the murder and dismemberment of the victims. One, unrecognizable, but the other was very clearly an airwalk boot, size seven and a half. Further investigation of the scene found these exact shoes in Sarah's closet. This told investigators that there was a chance that she was still alive. Away from the blood and viscera found in the living quarters of the home, in the garage, detectives found plastic Walmart bags containing industrial tarps and brute super tough brand trash bags. However, Tina's Ford F-150 pickup truck was nowhere to be found. An APB was put out for Tina's missing truck and the entirety of Knox County was on the lookout for the vehicle. Quickly after the APB was sent out, at 6.55 p.m., officers patrolling the area around Kenyon College in Knox County, Ohio, called in the location of Tina Herman's pickup truck. Believing that the truck was used by the suspect to transport the bodies, it was placed into evidence for fingerprinting and forensic analysis. At this time, detectives had very little to go off of. The only things that they knew for a fact were that a horrific crime had been committed in the home of Tina Herman and her two children, at least three people had been murdered and dismembered in the bathtub, and that there was a chance that Sarah Maynard was still alive due to the shoe print pattern stained on the tile flooring of the bathroom in blood. They were also able to deduce that the crime must have occurred between the hours of 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. on the 10th of November, 2010, due to the receipts for the groceries found purchased from the Kroger and the call from Valerie Haythorn stating that Tina had never made it to her 4 p.m. shift at work. The next day, Friday, November 12th, at 5.30 p.m., Tina's boyfriend, Greg Borders, was brought in to the Knox County Sheriff's Office for questioning. He was asked to recount his actions on the 10th of November. Greg stated that he had woken up around 3.40 a.m. on the morning of the 10th for work at the local Target Distribution Center, a facility that is responsible for sending products to the different locations across the area to be sold to the consumers of the American Canadian Department Store. After his shift, he claims to have made previous plans to spend the night at a friend's house so he could be there early the next morning to play golf. The next day, November 13th, Detective Joseph Dietz investigated his alibi and found that the Target distribution center that Greg worked for was incredibly secure, requiring a keycard be swiped before entry and departure. Conferring with management at the center, Detective Dietz was told that Greg's keycard was scanned at both the beginning and the end of his shift, completely clearing him of suspicion. Their only suspect's alibi was rock solid. 
so they took back to the scene of the crime to investigate further, hoping for more evidence to come to light. But despite the clear, brutal murder, everything seemed to be perfectly in order in the home. The only thing out of place was the Walmart bags containing the trash bags and tarps. Investigators seized this as evidence, assuming that after dismembering the bodies of the victims, the assailant had used the tarps and bags to transport the pieces of the bodies back to Tina's truck, and then drove the truck to dispose of the bodies. Detectives headed to the Apple Valley Walmart and requested all purchase records for the industrial tarps and brute super tough brand trash bags, revealing that only one purchase was made for both of the items in question, just after midnight, along with a turkey sandwich and an orange and black camouflage shirt on the 11th of November. The receipt also gave investigators information regarding what aisle the purchase was made at, and thus what security camera would give them the clearest shot of their suspect. This allowed them to trace the man back to the entrance of the supermarket and examine his movements and physical traits before the purchase. A Caucasian man, aged from 25 to 40 years old. Security footage showed the man walked into the Walmart, went directly towards the aisles he needed items from as if he knew exactly where they were, suggesting to authorities that he was a local of the area and had knowledge of the layout of that particular Walmart supermarket. After grabbing the bags and tarps, he stopped as well to grab himself a turkey sandwich and then paused again to look at the discount racks of clothes and purchase the camouflage shirt. Forensic psychologist Dr. Kate Termini determined that based on the security footage that the individual in question displayed psychopathic characteristics. No red flags were raised with his actions. He was perfectly calm and collected as he went about the store, found the items he needed, paid for them, and then left. Investigators tracked him through footage to his car, a silver 2008 Toyota Yaris. No license plate was visible in the footage, but cross-referencing the county record, they found one individual that matched a physical profile of the suspect that owned the vehicle. 30-year-old Matthew Hoffman. Matthew Hoffman was born November 1st, 1980, in Mount Vernon, Ohio. His father left early on in his life, and he grew up with his single mother parenting him alone. He'd spent most of his life in the area, graduating from high school and then moving briefly to Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where he got a job as a plumber for Scott Barnes Plumbing. In September of 2000, Hoffman stole two signs, valued at $5,000 each, that welcomed visitors to the town of Steamboat. In August of 2000, he was installing a garbage disposal in a townhouse located at the Ridge Townhomes near the ski-off access trails at Storm Meadows, being rented by Illinois man Robert Igzy. While installing the unit under the sink of the unsuspecting townhouse resident, he stole a set of house keys from the kitchen drawer. On August 27th of that same year, he made his way back to the townhouse, unlocking the front door with the key he had stolen and taking his fill of items from the home. Afterwards, Hoffman stole the key to Robert's Chevrolet Suburban and drove off in the vehicle. He then bought two five-gallon gasoline tanks and filled them up. He returned to the townhouse and, in an attempt to cover up evidence, poured all ten gallons of gasoline on the property and set it ablaze. The fire spread to ten different townhomes, causing an estimated two million dollars worth of damage. More than a dozen people were residing in the property at the time, and all were evacuated. Luckily, nobody was hurt. After the fire, Hoffman retreated back to Mount Vernon, Ohio, where he went undetected until September. The signs were recovered on September 7th at his former apartment at the D-Bar K Motel in Steamboat Springs. 
Police contacted him about the signs, and he agreed to come back to discuss the theft of them. During his police interview, he admitted to not only stealing the signs, but also committing the burglary and the arson of the townhomes. In exchange for a guilty plea, Deputy District Attorney Charles Feldman dismissed the felony theft charge for stealing the signs. Hoffman was ordered to pay restitution totaling $2.06 million and was sentenced to eight years in prison for the guilty plea of first-degree arson. He also received four years in prison for each of the guilty pleas to second-degree burglary and first-degree aggravated motor vehicle theft. District Judge Joel S. Thompson sentenced Hoffman to a total of 24 years in prison, but in a rare act of mercy, allowed him to serve each of his sentences at the same time, resulting in Hoffman only serving eight years. Judge Thompson stated, all of these sentences will run at the same time, so essentially you will serve eight years in prison. I don't want to make it too long. I want you to have hope and to take advantage of the programs offered to you in prison. Meanwhile, Deputy District Attorney Charles Feldman argued that Hoffman should serve at least 10 years in prison, saying, this was not a little campfire or prank. He spent time in this unit. He knew that people were coming and going there. He chose to dump 10 gallons of gas in a building where he knows other people are sleeping. This was not a quick childhood loss of judgment. This was a thought-out, premeditated plan. During his trial, Hoffman apologized for his actions, stating, I just want to say that I did have concern for the people in the condos. Now that I think back about it, I would not have done it. His sentence started on September 26, 2000, in Root County Jail, Colorado. In January 2001, he was transferred to the Colorado Department of Corrections State Prison, where he served another six years. And on January 10, 2007, he was released on parole. Hoffman was allowed to move back to Ohio later that year, after having paid only about $4,800 towards the $2.06 million that he owed in restitution for his arson charges. Exactly one month later, Tina Herman, Stephanie Sprang, and Cody and Sarah Maynard were reported missing, and Matthew Hoffman was seen on security footage at the Apple Valley Walmart purchasing items that were left in their home that evening. There was no mistaking it. Hoffman had something to do with the bloodbath in Tina Herman's home. The man confidently walking around the Walmart in the security footage was undeniably him, as he was wearing the same shirt in the footage that he was wearing in his driver's license photo. Further investigation found that Hoffman only lived four-tenths of a mile from the scene of the crime. A no-knock search warrant was issued on Hoffman's home, and SWAT was called in to apprehend him. On Monday, November 14th, just after daybreak, Mount Vernon Police Department Patrol Officer Brian Weiser and three SWAT officers approached the house. The team took a few deep breaths and began their entry. Using the butt of their assault rifles, they broke the lock off of the door and opened it just wide enough to throw a flashbang into the home. Blinding white light filled the room, and Hoffman, seated on the couch, was in a daze as the officers filled the room and held him at gunpoint. Officer Weiser noted a Beretta handgun on the table within Hoffman's reach and pulled him off of the couch, away from the weapon. Weiser then demanded that Hoffman put his hands behind his back, and without saying a word, he complied. Hoffman was escorted out of the building and handed off to officers waiting outside to be taken to the police station. The inside of the home was the most bizarre thing that Weiser had ever, or will ever see again. Leaves 
piles of leaves so massive that one could wade waist-high in them in the living room. Weiser's initial thought was that these piles could be hiding something. He grabbed the handle of a broom laying in the living room and began prodding at the pile so as to not disturb evidence. He spoke. It's the police. If you can hear me, please move around. Any movement in a pile of dry leaves would be immediately noticeable. But nothing happened. It was just a pile of leaves, more grand in size than any he had ever seen. Upon investigating further into the house, more leaves were found. A bathroom was found to have walls lined entirely with well over 100 bags of leaves, stacked from floor to ceiling, corner to corner. A door in the kitchen leading to the garage was decorated in almost childlike drawings, including a peace sign and what is referred to as a cool S. The pointed S popularized in 1970s American graffiti, and several crudely drawn stick figures. Pictures of the house can be found via the links in the show notes. Upon searching a deep freezer in the home, detectives found only two things, red popsicles and the frozen corpses of squirrels. Neighbors later reported that Hoffman often displayed erratic, strange behavior. He was known to camp out in trees in his backyard so he could then shoot and kill squirrels to eat their corpses. It was also reported by neighbors that he would often trap small animals in his yard and then set it ablaze while hiding in a tree. Hidden away in a nightstand in Matthew Hoffman's bedroom was a myriad of things, including a jungle primitive brand bowie knife, theorized to be the weapon that Hoffman used to dismember his victims, and a blackjack. A short leather bag weighted with lead, used to inflict blunt force trauma to the head, and pictures of Sarah Maynard going about her life as a teenage girl, playing softball, and walking around town, taken well before she went missing. Down a hall they found a door that led to a basement. Approaching cautiously, the officers, armed and ready, entered the basement to find even more leaves on the floor. Wall to wall, the floor was covered. Through a human-sized hole in the wall, there were even more leaves, and something else. There, on a makeshift bed of leaves, lay 13-year-old Sarah Maynard, bound, gagged, but otherwise, alive. Authorities escorted her out of the house, and she was taken to the hospital for recovery, during which time she had told police what she had endured during her captivity. Matthew Hoffman had camped outside of the home of Tina Herman and the Maynard children on the night of November 9th, 2010. He had made plans to burgle the residence, making a quick way in and out of the house with his stolen goods. He fell asleep in a sleeping bag just inside of the nearby tree line, undetected by anyone, just as he had done before, after taking note of the two cars in the driveway. On the morning of November 10th, 2010, Sarah and Cody readied for school. After doing so, they gave their mother a kiss and a hug and hurried off to their bus stop. Tina Herman had made plans to go grocery shopping and then apartment hunt with her friend, Stephanie, so that she could move out of her boyfriend's house. Upon waking up the next morning around 9am, he saw that there was now only one car in the driveway, and he had fallen back asleep until around 10am when he was woken up by the sound of the second car leaving the residence. Tina left, and Matthew made his way into the home. He'd tried the front door, only to find it locked. 
but he then noticed that the garage door was slightly ajar on the right side. He slid under the garage door and kicked in the door leading inside of the home. He then began filling his bag with the valuables inside of the house, remaining there for so long that eventually, after shopping at the local Kroger grocery store, Tina had arrived home in her pickup truck. Parking in the driveway, she had turned off the engine and began hauling bags inside of the house. She set them on the floor and began to unpack their contents to be put away. Hoffman was still inside of the house. He spent panicked moments trying to figure out what he was going to do in response to Tina's early arrival home. Not wanting to break a window to make his escape, Hoffman confronted Tina, dragging her to the nearest bedroom and demanding that she lay face down on the bed. He brought his blackjack with him, quote, in case he ran into any trouble. While Hoffman was striking Tina with the blackjack, attempting to knock her out, Stephanie Sprang entered the home. As a close friend of the family, she had often let herself inside. This came as a surprise to Hoffman, as after monitoring the house for an undetermined amount of time, he never expected another party to show up before the kids arrived home from school. In a newly heightened state of panic, he pulled out a knife and stabbed Tina twice in the back, quickly killing her, and ran after Stephanie through the house, eventually catching up to her and stabbing her in the chest several times in Sarah's bedroom. It was at this time that he had noticed that the family's dog had been barking in his kennel throughout the entire ordeal and began stabbing the dog through the wire kennel until he was dead. He then began the laborious process of dismembering the two women and the dog in the family's bathroom. While doing so, the children had arrived home from school. Sarah entered the home with Cody in tow and bent down to take her shoes off. Upon doing so, she had noticed pools of blood all over the floor and spatters on the walls. She had screamed for her mother, but was met only by Hoffman, brandishing a knife. He'd begun to chase after her, but noticed Cody, paralyzed in fear. Cody attempted to run to his bedroom, but was no match for the 30-year-old, and upon entering the room, Hoffman ended his life. Remembering that there was still a witness left in Sarah's room, Hoffman made his way back to the young girl, bound, gagged, and blindfolded her. He then put the blood-stained knife to her chest and told her, If you scream, I'll fucking kill you. Sarah was helpless. After he had finished dismembering Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and the family dog, there was the sound of an engine starting in the driveway. Sarah was left with terrifying silence in the house. She was paralyzed with fear. She didn't move. Eventually, someone re-entered the home and began to rummage around. Hoffman made a trip to the Apple Valley Walmart to purchase trash bags and tarps. He began piling the severed limbs and torsos of his victims into these bags and stuffing them into the bed of Tina's F-150. He came back inside to collect Sarah, throwing her over his shoulder and then into the cab of the truck before driving off. The engine stopped and Sarah was again picked up, brought into a house and thrown down a flight of stairs where she was able to take her blindfold off. She was surrounded by total darkness, darkness, and leaves. Hoffman had locked all of the doors and got back into the stolen pickup truck to drive it to a remote location to dispose of the bodies of Tina Herman, Stephanie Sprang, Cody Maynard, and the family dog. Throughout her captivity, he claimed to have taken excellent care of Sarah, making her hamburgers, letting her watch the 2008 Marvel movie Iron Man, and letting her play video games 
Sarah claims otherwise, stating that Hoffman on several occasions raped her and that she went most of her time during captivity without food in complete darkness. Over time, he gave her more comfortable bedding to put on top of the leaves as she complained of skin irritation. But the blankets did little good to protect her from the cold November musk of the dirty basement. After her rescue, Sarah asked the detectives if she could see her mother and brother, but to no avail. Detectives told her only that they were still looking for them. Meanwhile, they had brought Matthew Hoffman into an interrogation room to find out where the bodies of Tina Herman, Stephanie Sprang, and Cody Maynard were located. But Hoffman was refusing to speak at all, feigning a catatonic state, perhaps not to implicate himself, as the state of Ohio still practiced the death penalty for extreme cases such as this. He had refused to even sign the documents stating that he had been read his Miranda rights, and for the first 10 minutes of his interrogation, investigators tried without success to get Hoffman to say even a single word. Finally, in sign language, even though he was not deaf or mute, did he say that his heart was broken. After investigators brought up Sarah Maynard, he began to cry for what investigators can only assume to be the end of his relationship with Sarah, whom he had previously told law enforcement was his girlfriend. Dendrophilia is a term used to describe an individual that is sexually aroused by trees, and considering his idea that Sarah was his girlfriend, forensic psychologist Kate Termini believes that there may have been a, quote, level of romantic interest behind laying Sarah on a bed of leaves. Hoffman remained completely silent and intermittently closed his eyes for an extended period of time for the first three and a half hours of his interrogation until Detective Joseph Dietz entered the room and told him that if he had any feelings for Sarah at all, that he would help to answer his questions and bring closure to Sarah with the truth about what happened to her mom and brother. He told Detective Dietz, almost there, and took a drink of his water before going silent again. Three separate interrogations were performed without any information regarding the location of the bodies, totaling over 10 hours of recorded footage, during which Detective Dietz wrote his contact information on a slip of paper and slid it into the pants pocket of the falsely catatonic Hoffman. Days later, Hoffman contacted Dietz and had begun detailing a dream he'd had wherein he was trapped in a food processing plant, being forced to sift through trash bags full of dismembered body parts. He'd had this dream on his third day in a suicide prevention cell in the Knox County Jail, and claimed that he wanted to make a full confession about the location of the bodies. To further ensure that Hoffman would reveal the locations, Detective Dietz promised that he would prevent the death penalty from being issued on Hoffman in exchange for a full confession. During the last interview, Hoffman was told that all recording devices were turned off. Whether or not this was an intentional lie is unknown. Hoffman stated that he wanted full control over the rights to the recorded confession that he was now willing to give. Without these rights, he would not agree to the deal that Dietz had proposed, but the detective could not promise that the confession wouldn't be played in court, nor that he wouldn't be injected with Thorazine, a drug used to treat schizophrenia for the rest of his life in prison, seeing as how after the case was finished, it was out of Dietz's hands. Hoffman never made a full confession to the police. The following is a clip played from the very end of the interrogation where Dietz and an FBI agent told him that this was his last chance to confess and spare him of the death penalty. They're telling me that they are pushing and well, they're, they're, they're pushing, the prosecutors are pushing to have 
you come and have a hearing and this is it. This is your last chance to talk to us, literally. <laughs> um, and unless there's a lawyer present, that's what they're they're pushing for. They you're saying, you yeah, you're saying you don't. You're you're still willing to talk to us without an attorney, but they're that's what's being done now as far as pushing for that. So this is your last chance right now to talk to us. They'll come and make one. the decisions for you. Yeah, I mean, will, I mean they literally, they'll take that away. They, they make it sound like it's your freedom, but really won't give you that chance. Well, it's really not in my best interest to talk without a lawyer. It's your best interest. Well, if you, again, hopefully we've built some trust to know that we're not lying to you when we tell you that it does help you in the end. And you, and you can talk with a lawyer, but yeah. I'm just telling you that lawyers almost always in cases like this try to, you know, control you. The first thing they're going to tell you is not to talk to us. And then if you are here, I mean, they're, they're going to be you know, the impression you gave me this morning was certainly that you're not concerned about your case, that you recognize that this is a, a, a you know, that this is in terms of the case that this is done. But they're, but they're charged with, you know, looking at it differently. So, I mean, this is realistically our last opportunity. you got to think of your family and you, yourself, and how that's going to work. They're going to be the ones that you have to face in the end and how they're going to view that. Your mom has been pressing to say, just do the right thing and tell tell us where they are and she will be there for you. That's what's going to give her pride, knowing that you were honest. And this is your last chance. We've met people in this position fall into two categories, ones that really like the recognition and the notoriety because they're proud of what they did and ones that really don't because they're they're sorry about what they did and they want you know this to minimize. Okay, but the quickest way to minimize the zoo that's going on outside in terms of the media attention is for this to come to its natural initial end in terms of investigation. Then they go on to the next thing and they move ahead and, and you know, this becomes just a, a little blip. So, quite honestly, you know, whether we find them this morning with the people that are out looking or whether you help us find them, the sooner they're found, the sooner this, you know, starts to die down. So... I mean, that's another, again, I'm just looking for ways that, that will help you come to this decision, but that's another thing to think about if that is a concern to you, and it sounds like it is. And the, the lack of the media pressure makes up the other people that are, you know, being affected by it. Sorry about that. Okay. We're done. We apparently are told we are done. Keep everything we said in mind for you. Think about it and think about what you can do for yourself after you talk to an attorney and the deal that you can make for yourself. If we're talking about what's best for you and if that's most important to you, talk to an attorney and they'll let you know that that's the best deal you're going to get if you come forward and don't let us continue on with having hundreds of volunteers dredging up everything, that that's going to be the best thing for you. But we have to stop. Why do you have to stop? They're telling us that we have to stop. Hey, yeah. the, the attorneys from the other side have filed paperwork or filed or something may have gone before a judge and got a court order that means we have to stop talking to you and they have to let an attorney work with you. Okay. You do have control to some degree. Okay. You can tell them, look, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to those guys. Okay. You mm -hmm. can do that. Okay. You can try it. And you're a pretty strong old guy. So if you want to do that, you just tell them, say, to what? You can tell them, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to the police. You do have rights. But they want to make sure you're Christians for me. 
maybe they can. Yeah. I mean, we're done. I mean, I, I'm not trying to, I'm just telling you that you still do have the freedom. You can send a note and say, I want to talk to the detectives. I want to talk to Joe or Chris or whatever. You still have that right. I just want to keep that in your mind. But maybe talking to them will help you reach some decision. If we don't go away, man, I'll come back and talk to you anytime. Sure. All you have to do I, is let, let the jailer know or whatever know. But just recognize that, you know, things are going to change a little bit from this point on. Okay, just sit tight. There's still two, two officers coming. Two days after his last interview, however, Hoffman had decided that he wanted to live, and he wrote a four-page-long confession to Dietz, detailing his crime and the location of the bodies. He appointed investigators to a 60-foot-tall hollow tree with an access point at the top of it in the Cocosing Wildlife Area near Fredericktown. Detective Dietz had placed a ladder at the base of the tree and climbed to the top. Looking down with flashlight in hand, he found a number of black trash bags at the trunk of the tree. Detectives called in specialists to expertly cut a hole in the tree in order to carefully remove the bags. Inside of each one of them was a part of each body belonging to Tina, Stephanie, Cody, and the family dog. Forensic psychologist Kate Termini stated that the act of placing these body parts inside of a tree to someone with Hoffman's sexual attraction to trees could be regarded as a sacred act a holy place where he could come back to. Sarah, still in the hospital, later turned on the TV, which was already set to the local news station, and it began playing. Tonight the case is closed after a man admitted he murdered three people in Knox County. The bodies of Tina Herman, Cody Maynard, and family friend Stephanie Sprang were found inside of a hollowed-out tree. This morning, Matthew Hoffman admitted to killing them and attacking a 13-year-old girl. Hoffman pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder, one count of first-degree aggravated burglary, one count of first-degree aggravated kidnapping, rape, tampering with evidence, and three counts of abuse of a corpse. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on January 7, 2011. The sentencing was attended by family and friends of the victims, that it burst out into tears when the verdict was read out. Deputy District Attorney Charles Feldman, the lead attorney on the arson case in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, later said, I wish the court would have granted my request for a longer prison sentence for Mr. Hoffman back in 2001. His actions were horrific, and his complete disregard for human life was a magnitude that our local courts rarely encounter. The murder and dismemberment of Tina, Cody, and Stephanie, and the kidnapping and rape of Sarah Maynard occurred exactly one month after his parole ended for the arson charges in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Sarah had written a victim impact statement to be read aloud by the prosecutor. All I was thinking about was if my family was okay, and if I was going to be able to live, especially when he was putting the ropes on me. I said, ow. And he said, I don't care if your arms and legs turn purple. Justice will never be served. I will never be able to get my mom and brother back until I see them in heaven. Matthew, I want you to know that you will never be forgiven by me. And I am not scared of you, Matthew. I am going to stand up for myself and live my life. <laughs>